0: I'm Tina Funder. And I'm Laurel Davis.
1: Welcome to Work Like a Mother Father, a podcast about negotiating working parenthood one positive conversation at a time.
2: Because a lot of what we as parents and our kids want is just to be accepted and not judged and not compared, um, which which is what we all do, unfortunately, as humans.
1: Anna Oxley-Rintel has a boundless capacity for humanity. In her corporate life in a big four bank, Anna carved out a role combining her commercial savvy with her passion for social justice, reaching into the community to change people's lives for the better. So when her daughter was diagnosed with autism, how did Anna find the emotional reserves needed to face this uncertain new world head on? In this raw, funny and utterly inspiring conversation, Anna shares with us the rough and tumble, the challenges and the joys of family life and professional life with a neurodiverse child. Welcome Anna, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today and we're so excited to have this conversation with you, really important conversation to be having.
2: Thank you, I'm very pleased to be here and I'm also excited about the what we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah, so let's just kick off with the fact that you're on extended leave at the moment from a, a pretty high powered job in one of the big four banks. Can you tell us what led you to making that decision to step away for extended leave?
2: Yes. So, yep, I've been um, working in one of the big four for 16 years now. Obviously took some time off for my three babies, my leave, and then after that I was working a variation of part-time and full-time over that time um, but one of my children has have received a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and uh, so that happened at the end of prep for her though before that we were having problems anyway so we after the three-year-old kinder I think for her we were already having problems in terms of behavior and get along with other kids and ending up in the principal's office which is kind of hilarious at kinder (laughs) sweet but anyway so that's been going on really from the beginning and it's kind of escalated recently to a point where so we've tried four schools to, to find the right thing for her that suited her and also trying to find the right mix of medications to help with her very severe anxiety and quite severe behavioural Issues. And how old is she now? She's now 10. Okay. So we found out when she was seven. Mm-hmm. Would have been so good if we had have known earlier. But mm. girls, harder to pick. Right. Um, there's a whole lot going on about that at the moment. And, I mean, we can talk about that afterwards, but girls don't look the same as boys typically on the spectrum. Uh, so harder to pick. And so we tried four different schools. She's now at a special school, which is set up for children with severe anxiety and or severe behavioural issues. Mm -hmm. So, it's perfect for her. The children are all either at level or above in terms of intellect and academic capability. So, in that sense it's really well suited to her but her anxiety has been morphing she's 10 and um, starting to face into puberty so again we're having more changes in terms of mood and um, challenges and depression has started to become a problem for us for her so we and when I say depression I mean really bad like she I mean she, the things that she would say as a 10 year old you never want to hear like yeah. when the bushfires were on I want to mm. go to the bushfires so I can die and I want to go to China and get the coronavirus so I can die oh. yeah and look you don't really know how much they mean but it just you don't hear it it's not it's not the kind of thing you generally hear mm. from kids And just amongst other feelings of sadness and grief because she's got a lot of self-awareness. She understands that she's different. She doesn't want to be different. You know, she says things, she used to say things still does. Like if I could, if there was a magic fairy or if, you know, there was a genie in a bottle, I would only have one wish and that was not to have autism. So, you know, mummy's crying. Ah, mm. it's, you know, very, very sad. So we've got a fantastic doctor and we agreed that we might we would switch the medication for her anxiety and choose another anxiety medication, which is also designed for low mood. In order to change medications, anyone who knows this, you have to run one down slowly before you can run the new one up. Okay. And when you run one down slowly, anxiety peaks. Yeah. So this has been an eight-week journey for us. And I just was at the point where I just thought I have to be on call because... She could sometimes get through the day at school, but not always. And
1: remembering that this
2: school is set up for Mm, kids.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, so obviously there are people in place who are helping her get through those days. Um,
2: I mean, look, I I think for those days, no. Like, that was beyond what anyone could really manage. So they can manage her when she's well-medicated and we're working with our best case scenario when the medications are wobbly even then it's just either she gets too aggressive in the playground or too defiant or too um, anxious and upset or too dysregulated Mm -hmm. so she can't kind of concentrate, can't follow the instructions, distracts other kids like the classrooms are smaller as it is with a lot of help but even then too hard. Right. Uh, And so I just made a decision to take some time off to just be there on call ready to pick her up at any time stay home with her if she's having a difficult day and also to kind of manage my other children because when she's heightened everyone's stressed we've got two children both who have anxiety issues I'm smiling (laughs) one of those forced smiles you know (laughs) everything's okay um one of the other one of my children has ADD slash ADHD which explains his anxiety and my which is not all the time and my little guy is not diagnosed with anything but he has pretty severe anxiety generalized anxiety and worrying about bridges falling on him and why would I walk under that building what's holding it up kind of thing for a seven-year-old it's like a lot. So, when she's anxious, the house is pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, so, I just decided to kind of batten down the hatches. Coincidentally, coronavirus came along. Yes. So, we. Very well timed. Not bad
1: timing. <laughs> yeah. Your workplace has been supportive of you taking the time off. And we know that as working parents, we all need flexibility, but as someone with a a child who's on the spectrum and needs extra special care, you probably need more flexibility than others. And how have you found your work in response to your needs? And what would you recommend for workplaces who need to respond to someone in a similar situation to you?
2: Yeah. So I definitely have needed more flexibility. Um, Like I'll say, the the last three or four managers that I've had have been very, very supportive. So I think like any organisation, it's got almost as much to do with the individuals that you're working with and for than what the policies say. Mm -hmm. But in big organisations like the banks, they've got really good, comprehensive, flexible working policies, but really it's up to the manager to kind of decide how they manage that. And so for me, I've been really lucky on that front. And I think also the, the nature of the type of work that I've done does lend itself to working from home if necessary. So I do I do a lot of facilitation and a lot of leadership coaching and development, that sort of thing. But I also do a lot of, um, you know, design of strategy and so I, th- those sorts of things I can do at home. I can have phone calls to get input. So I think I've been lucky. And also being in a big organisation, as we know, they can tolerate flexible working more because there's just more resources mm. around to kind of, pick up the slack if need be. Yeah. I've been very lucky, but yeah, it's, I I have absolutely needed it.
1: Yeah. And would one of the tips be just to be really open with your communication with your manager and just work something out together or how should people go about it if they need it?
2: Well, I think it's really hard and I think that's the same for any kind of asking for flexibility, you know, whether, whatever the need is. Mm. um, I think it's just that first few times that you kind of get to that place where you're like, "Mm, what do you think, you know, would this be okay? Uh, I mean, certainly I have been very open and I, the part of that for me is about building education and understanding of, of, of um, how autism affects community. But also I think it's a, it's, it's a combination of being brave and also acknowledging that it's your right, right? It's not your fault. You were given this gift of a different child um, and you do need more understanding and more flexibility. So I think there's an element of being sort of clear on what it is that you need, which can be hard when you mm. don't exactly know. Mm. But I also think try things, review try Mm. again, review, try something different and be willing to continue to try different versions until you find something that suits you
0: and your Mm. employer. Yeah. From a legislative point of view, when you think of things like parent and carer leave, are they broad enough to account for the nuances of having a child with autism?
2: So look, I think probably yes and no, in the sense that they're broad enough that I think they just represent carers. Mm. And I think that they don't uh, from what I've seen, they don't distinguish between the type of carer. So yeah. you might be caring for someone with Alzheimer's or yes. someone with physical disability or, you know, other sort of disabilities. So in that sense, I think, sure, they kind of cover it. But are they extensive enough? Oh, my feeling is probably not. I mean, where I work, there's I'm entitled to 10 days carers leave a year, which I think is awesome. That's partly how I've taken some of this time off. But, I mean, I also probably would have needed more, whether it's leave or flexibility or just an understanding that my ability to be somewhere is, you know, is connected to that. And I think what, what i found to date is that policies around disability and, in particular, autism are more related to the individual. So yeah. you see more and more organisations doing fantastic work, offering employment opportunities, workshops to get them work ready and all that kind of thing, which I think is awesome. But um, in some ways I'm not disabled physically, but in the version of my life, I am disadvantaged or it's harder. So it's sort of a funny thing thinking about the when you're sort of around it, but it's, the, the policies aren't really designed necessarily for you.
0: What do you think about being a working parent? Generally, we, we feel like people understand that in those early weeks and months, it's full on and you need A lot of space and a lot of help to kind of get through it and that's the kind of lot for new parents but as kids get older I think the broad assumption is you know life gets easier you need less flexibility it can just be business as usual when your kid has additional needs often the reverse is the case right do you find it hard to help people understand this
2: Short answer, yes. I think that applies, though, to all parents in many ways because this whole idea of, well, you've got childcare, or well, there's a childcare rebate, or we need better childcare, you know, that might go for two or three years. And then you've got school for 12 years, which starts at 8.30 or 9 and finishes at 3 or 3.30. So I think that issue is relevant to all working parents, absolutely. I mean, certainly... Uh, for <sighs> I don't expect many people to understand. So that's one of the things. I do feel a little bit emotionally isolated, if you like, because unless you've lived it or you've really lived closely to it, there's no way you can understand. So the fact that my daughter is bright and clever and articulate and people will meet her and be like, she's fine. That's fine. And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, come to my house. There's holes in my wall. There's, you know... I don't know, mess everywhere or whatever it is, because it's hidden. I I really think that this type of disability, neurodiversity, is a hidden one. And I'm always a bit up and down about the word disabled as well, actually, Mm. because um, I say to my daughter, you're not disabled because it's a mindset that I'm trying to build for her. But at the same time, I want her to understand that it's okay if she can't. So it's really finding that balance. And it's the same with Other families that I'm talking to, uh, how can they understand what that life is like? Yeah, now that she's 10, surely X and Y. And it's like, well... No, but she can do some things like a 24-year-old mm.
0: <laughs> and some yeah. things like
2: a four-year-old. Mm. It's quite – just. it's really hard to understand unless yeah. you live it. And yeah. there's
0: only so far that finding the right language can go to helping people understand it and also for, for people experiencing it to feel comfortable with their identity. Yeah. You know, language is only part of the problem, isn't it? Also yeah, oh, oh, part of the solution.
2: It's, it is. It's, it's important and it's limiting. Mm. It's mm. kind of both, yeah. yeah.
1: And you mentioned really briefly earlier that she was – diagnosed in PrEP, was it? End of PrEP. End of PrEP. Yeah. So talk us through coming to that point of diagnosis when you realised there was an issue, seems like it was sort of quite a a long time coming from what you've described, but also how that reframed your family life, but also how you sort of looked at the future for family.
2: Yeah. So I always knew that there was something different. I wouldn't would I say wrong? I don't know. I definitely knew there was something different from a very early age. Like when she was six months old, she used to suck her thumb and rock, you know, back and forth. And I, um, at one point the paediatricians, who were just going for regular visits, and he said, oh, um, you should see a neurologist about that rocking. And I was like, oh okay because I she was my second child but with babies you sort of think oh they're all different they'll do their own things she looks fine she's happy enough so I take her to the neurologist and the neurologist says oh it's probably self-soothing it could be tick a tick I was like okay I'm going to be researching that because what is that Mm. I had no real knowledge about any neurodiversity things or any real kind of developmental differences until Mm. that point or it could be self-soothing for anxiety and I was like, she's six months old. old. What is she anxious about? And to me, that was already, one, heartbreaking that a baby is, mm. aside from like being hungry and be- having a wet nappy and wanting a cuddle, you know, something's anxiety making for her. And then we had all these sensory issues. We lived in Sydney at the time. She hated the beach. Awesome. <laughs> like, why else live in Sydney? Yes. Hated the sand, hated the water. Scream. So that's and then they would the OT would tell me that's sensory issue, and I was like, what does that mean? So of course I had to then go and understand that this concept of how our bodies and our you know our what we feel and what we smell and what we see and what we touch our senses it can be dysregulated or it can vary in different neurological conditions, and so some things might be extra loud for her, or sand might feel extra scratchy, or water might be extra wet i don't know yeah and so uh, you know through all of these going to different people and they're like "Mm, there's something go here Mm, not sure go here because she was articulate had words from an early age funny eye contact quite charming really really affectionate and physical but continually had social issues in the sense of unable to negotiate play unable to really um uh, cope with not winning or not being first like a young child mm. might do but she was still doing that well beyond when she should okay. have right so she loses a game of snakes and ladders and the whole thing goes flying or someone gets hit or you know it's school fighting in the playground a lot mm. of that and okay. then again that's I think one of the hard things about a girl because girl that's not appropriate behavior for girls really society doesn't really oh we boys sometimes they're a bit they get a bit physical or mm. you know that's how they work problems out mm. but girls aren't really supposed to be like that and so already my defenses were up and my protection was up about you know oh well what do you know what do we do what do we do why is she doing this like, you know how can we help her and then i've really just had problems all the way through kinder Um, we moved back to Melbourne really for that reason Mm. that we just were like we're in crisis here we've got to work out what to do because she was literally in the principal's office I'm doing inverted air quotes (laughs) now principal's office such a sweet story she was in there at one point she started singing Bob Marley everything's gonna (laughs) be all right like at the desk (laughs) so she's so funny and she looks like a doll I mean she's got lots of great things on her side we came back to Melbourne I thought well we better put her in a an an ELC, a private ELC, because we're going to repeat her because she was young and socially really delayed, which I again thought she's a January baby. That's okay. So repeated four-year-old and we put her in a private ELC. And then we thought, oh, we'll just keep her in in private. We never intended to do private primary, Mm. but then by prep, the prep teacher was like, listen, we've got major defiance issues and, you know, major... <clears throat> inability to follow instructions, take her turn, you know, she wasn't sort of hitting those developmental milestones that you expect to see in prep. So I think you need to get her assessed and I initially th- thought, oh, she means for ADHD because disclaimer, I have ADHD, which I discovered through my oldest, which anyone who knows me will not be surprised about. <laughs> <laughs> and for me that's great to know, but it's not I don't in if any case, I think it's a bit of a superpower, but th- I thought that's what they would be testing her for and they said no for ASD I was like huh autism spectrum disorder and I was like what I I just didn't even know what that was and Mm. what do you mean look at her I didn't even know anything about it But then of course we went through the whole process and I still at that time was like it's clearly whatever you can do the testing but she's not she doesn't have that so the psychologist does a test, the OT does a test, they write a report and give it to the paediatrician and each time they provided me the report they were telling me the findings and I was nodding like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they were like, and we think that she is on the spectrum. And I was like, what? And then the next report and then go to the doctor and they were like, "Yup." So it's hard, There's, you know, it's, um, it was hard for us to work it out but through all the data that we've gathered, yes, we think she is. And I was just... Devastated, like crying hot tears all night, like just, because I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that life would be hard for her. It already was. Mm. And I knew it was lifelong at that point. Yeah. So I think that's that one of the things that was really devastating and shocking. And it has been, I have been going through a grief process, I think, and it's still kind of going in different ways, but once I kind of pulled myself together and got into my action mode, which is how I like to operate, well, I got a lot of books and we got a lot of experts and we just went, right, what do we need to do? And so that was great because I had direction, I, had, I knew where to go and what to ask and if that wasn't working, I knew what else to try. So the diagnosis was really helpful. Mm-hmm. How has it changed my expectations of life? I mean, in almost every way. But firstly, I, my, our benchmarks are a lot lower now. So going going to school that's a tick because we had school refusal for the first three schools. So actually just going, right? Not winning the chess award and not, I don't know, being the fastest runner or the best at maths. It was just go go and spend the day there and come home winning. So I think that's been really nice. Actually, I grew up in a fairly like high pressure, high achievement home, which caused, you know, my own anxiety, which triggered my own anxieties, I'm sure in many ways. But um, so that's been really nice. I think the other thing that I've really genuinely been grateful for is that I have always been really well right in the center of mainstream in my life my family how I grew up at school like you know I I never I was always included in the middle part of things probably up the front you know somehow and now I know what it feels like to be on the outside I really know what that feels like and I was not going to have the chance there's no other I don't know how else I could have experienced that rather than watching it in a movie or something, you know. So each school, as it went by, I started hanging out with the parents, with the kids with issues. Mm. Or I would be the one who people might be kind of making funny eyes at because my daughter had done something embarrassing or horrible or offensive at school. So I think that's been really, really important. Mm. You know, I feel like I know what it feels like to be on the outside and then therefore I just am like have a broader experience of humanity, you know, Um, and I'm really grateful for that. (laughs)
1: Other than on your maternity leaves, have you and your husband worked pretty well full-time since the diagnosis? Um,
2: So my husband has. I have worked mostly part-time well, mostly part-time just because of the kids. Yeah, You know, like I I sort of just rolled up into being a parent now. I don't think so much about now that we've got the diagnosis is different. I think juggling the three kids anyway was why I probably chose to work part-time. Yeah. 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 So that's the same. And I did do what I suggested about trying things, try three days, try four days, trying different things, depending on what work you're doing at the time and what you're What's happening with the kids, or yeah. what's happening uh, with your, your b- current boss? So, in that sense, I feel like it's
1: just yeah, part of the parenting yeah thing yeah. And without wanting to sound harsh, do you find work a nice escape? Oh yes, oh, don't don't we all? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, yes,
2: absolutely and absolutely. I I do. I feel like if I knew that I had to be at home, I mean, once they got to or got to school, that wasn't a choice anyway. But what I found was. Dropping off, particularly Ellie, was always hard because it would just break my heart, right, until we got her to this place where she's happy to go – it was really mm. hard to drop off, and my heart would break. Mm. Like, it would hurt, and I felt like if I went home, I'd just sit down and have a cup of tea and nurse my broken heart. Mm. But you get to work, and stuff happens. People yeah. call you. You're in a meeting. You're working on something. You're talking about something completely different. And so, I think mental health wise, it's been it was it's great, really important. I mean, I have a very busy mind as well, so I need to be kept occupied. Mm. So, yes, a hundred percent. As long as the work's interesting and it feels worth it, mm. I think. And again, it's yes. the same for all parents. I think if you're doing something, you think this matters, Yeah, I'm good at this, I'm valued, awesome. If you don't think those things and it's so hard to get to work, I think that's when it gets yeah. a bit like, oh, eh,
1: what and, do you do? And you know that your child's in the right place as well exactly. is a really important thing. And it's same for any parent. Same for any parent. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, And we often go straight to talking about challenges and hardships, but what in what ways has having a child on the spectrum enhanced your life or enriched your life?
2: Certainly in the, in the way of my perspective about where I fit in the world and who I relate to. But gosh, I mean, there's so many, and this is what I say to my daughter all the time, like there's things about autism that other people would love to have. Her memory is remarkable. She'll say, remember when we went to that place when I was three and I was wearing that dress and, and you cut up the apple wrong? And I'm like, whoa! I mean, I have an awful memory, so I find it <laughs> even particularly remarkable. But a, a incredible memory, it, and she'll talk to anyone. So you know, it's quite it's quite fun to watch her going up and talking to. She talks to. She's obsessed with AFL. That's her thing. Mm-hmm. Obsessed. The Hawks. Everything. So she knows the players. She knows the draft. She knows the ladder. She knows the injuries. She knows you know, all of it. So she'll go up and talk to young men. And they're right in there, and she can connect <laughs> with them, and they, and they think she's awesome, and I think that's great, you know. And she can talk to anyone; she's not, she's sort of age agnostic, if you like. Well, actually, she finds it easier to talk to adults than kids. Yeah. Right. But I love that. I love that she can connect with all sorts of community. And I'll tell you the other thing that's been absolutely mind blowing in a really beautiful way is, she has got a real natural caring um, component to her personality which goes against what you might read about lack of empathy she's deeply deeply caring and she's not scared or intimidated by quite intense medical situations so we've had two instances where we've had family members quite old she doesn't really know them very well she knows they're an aunt or a great uncle or something she'll go into the hospital with my mum hold their hand ask them how they're feeling and bring immense joy in that moment of in illness or in some cases on you know on the way to to the other side Mm. uh, what nine or ten year old will do that willingly and then ask questions how are they going how did their operation go have they recovered well are they back at the shops so her care factor and you know really detailed concern for others is Mm. unlike any other child there's another time I was was my birthday and I was ironing something I don't know and she was sitting up having breakfast and she said to me mum do you mind ironing on your birthday and I thought Oh my gosh neither of my other boys would have said that nor my husband <laughs> right yeah. so you know there she was sitting there thinking oh it's mum's birthday it's a special day for her ironing's not a great thing to do wonder how she feels mm. amazing that's a
0: deep well of empathy right a there
2: <laughs> and that's part of anxiety for mm. her is that she cares so deeply and it hurts so much that you know she's got to kind of contend with all of this so it's pretty beautiful mm. it's pretty amazing and gosh she's hilarious. <laughs>
0: you've touched already on the sort of challenges and curveballs that that came in those years before you had a diagnosis for Ellie. But once you were able to put a name on it, particularly in a work sense, were you open about it in a way to sort of help create an understanding around you and why you might have certain additional needs yourself?
2: So... Again, people who know me will know that I'm a chronic oversharer. So I tend to sort of be yeah, be very open. And that part of that for me is about my grief and about processing my grief. And so part of it is about talking about it. It has also become very much partly about advocacy and building understanding and helping other people to understand the detail, the day-to-day. So, you know, that that's also been a part of it. But in terms of, of the, the, the label, I did struggle with that on a number of accounts. One, because... I wasn't sure if it was mine to come out with because it's hers. So on one hand I was like, well is it for me to be labeling you so that others see you in a certain way? I did grapple with that. Ultimately, I did come out with it for her for her benefit because I found that people were more accommodating, understanding knowing, even if they didn't understand very much about it, being more sort of less judgmental and more um, willing to accept unexpected behaviours, as we like to call them. Mm. And from a work perspective as well, I think, yes, absolutely. I think it's really important. And I mean, I've got a really strong belief about work that the more you can bring your whole self to work and the more you can share what your experience of life is the more you're going to have one a better um, support network around you Mm. and a better experience at work and then you can be a better performer so I think you know that whole kind of openness for me it helps I know a lot of people are very private either Mm. about their own stuff or their children's stuff and I completely respect that but for Mm. me it's that's just kind of how I roll but also for me I also have a more and more growing I suppose drive to build understanding and advocacy.
0: Mm. You talked a bit earlier actually about the dissonance between a person with a disability or with additional needs potentially being legislatively protected whereas the person who might be caring for them being in a slightly more vulnerable position. So in Australia, the rights of most neurodiverse kids are covered by the Disability Discrimination Act. But in terms of parents and carers, does anti-discrimination legislation extend far enough to, particularly in your case, the needs of a parent who is juggling work and caring for a kid with autism?
2: So I wish I had more of a technical response for you on that one. And I love the question and it's actually something that I'm going to go away and do some more research on. I do know that the carers and parents are protected in terms of anti-discrimination, but to what extent and how much has it actually been put on the table and used and, and explored from a legal perspective? I don't know. Mm. It's a funny thing when you, so, so here I am sitting here talking about what it is to be the parent of a neurodiverse slash disabled child but I have never really identified as being in that space until very recently so it's only now that I'm starting to look at that sort of history because I know there's obviously a very long history and the whole bringing out of the NDIS is obviously indication of how much work has happened. I can imagine that that's just been decades and decades of of effort but I I feel like I'm only just starting to find my own role in that space and I definitely feel like I I have a role to play here but I do need to get my facts and then I kind of need to work out which where where it makes most sense for me to play.
0: Mm. And do you have any any thoughts, as you seem to be sort of dipping your toe in the water now, about what kind of social reform is needed to better support parents of neurodiverse kids and more broadly kids with other additional needs? So say, for example, the scope of the NDIS was broadened. What kind of things would you like to see that would support people in your very particular set of circumstances?
2: I mean, I think like any system, there's lots of elements to that and NDIS is, is certainly one of them and, and it really has benefited us in a really positive way in the sense that we can now afford to spend um, money on really specialised things for, for our daughter across a number of areas. But I think in terms of social change or social advocacy, like any of these less understood issues, I think understanding and, 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 and bringing public awareness is really important because a mm. lot of what we as parents and our kids want is just to be accepted and not judged and not compared, um, which, is, which is what we all do, unfortunately, as humans. And in many ways, the more that we can do that for this cause the better off for sort of all the other things that might be left of centre or slightly different. I think all humans would probably benefit from that. But I do, I feel like there are slowly some more public messaging around what, in the case of of autism, what it looks like, what the experience of it is. There's some ads running at the moment, which I think are really good. They Mm. sort of just give a very, very specific day-to-day example of what might be hard for someone in the workplace or in a cafe and that sort of thing, which I like. I think there have been some other... (laughs) um public uh efforts um which i i can only assume were uh, established to build a more a broader understanding of what experience is so tv shows i'm thinking of one of them's employable me which you may have seen and that Mm. shows a different series of of disabilities and how that plays out in terms of trying to get a job which i think looks that's really good helps people understand the challenges and how potential employers might be able to help or people around them there's another one that i am less enthusiastic about and i'm put on the table that this is my personal reaction to it but for those of you who've seen Love on the Spectrum I think the idea of that was to I assume build awareness of what it is to live with autism and I mean autism is such a broad okay the word spectrum gets rolled around a lot but actually there's a saying if you've met someone on the spectrum you've met one person on the spectrum Mm. because um, it just plays out so differently Mm. so in some ways you can spot it like I feel like with kids especially I can kind of spot it now a little bit more so it is very diverse but I I didn't love the way that program represented. I felt like the casting was a little bit intentionally uh, for, for good viewing mm. rather than necessarily for really building wellness and awareness and understanding. Mm. And you know, I'll put on the table, I'm very raw about this because it's very personal to me what people what people's understanding of being autistic is, obviously. But I don't know that it's helpful to put very extreme examples and this is no disrespect to the people they chose they all really great individuals in their own right but I feel like the casting was intentionally a bit extreme Mm. and that it possibly created a a, a view that all autistic people are either quite eccentric or they only date other autistic people or I mean god forbid they're awkward on a first date Mm. (laughs) you know And I did feel a little bit, like, I know it was very popular. And so on one hand, I'm interested in that. Is it because people wanted to know about autism or it, I couldn't help feeling that possibly people were a bit oh the autistic swallowing in love how cute yeah a little bit yeah. condescending I, I don't, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth but with my very sensitive defensive heart on that's how it
0: felt to me and yeah. I didn't love that and it double underlines the need to be really really mindful and really cautious and really well researched and have really broad inputs into anything that is setting out to depict the experience of a particular set of life conditions and so, I, I wonder how 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 broad the inputs were into that
1: yeah. and in a way setting up a minority as entertainment sorry mm. <laughs> yep. mm. it's wrong mm-hmm. yeah but people loved it and I mean I'd love to know I, I'd be really interested to know why mm. what is
2: it that they liked about it yeah. mm. um so you know that's I guess that's all I'll say on that one but in terms of social Advocacy and change. I've been reading Sally Rugg's book, "How Powerful We Are," oh, yeah. and she drove the campaign. Well, she, amongst many, many others mm. over many years, um, drove the campaign for the the gay marriage legislation. Yeah. And I just think that's a really good, a really, really good positive example. I know how hard it was and how painful it was, mm. but that demonstrated that you can get society to a point where, if there was something that previously they didn't understand and were potentially a bit frightened of because we fear mm-hmm. the unknown, that's a really good model mm. that I think we can take because that. Mm community is also very broad and very different it doesn't Mm. look the same um, which is the same as autism or neurodiversity and I think they did it right they did it they showed that they found a way to connect with humans who 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 are around it because I just recently did some research that found that I think there was something like nearly 340,000 kids or or people in Australia are autistic I don't know as at last year That, that that means that times two of those are parents so, there's that times you times that by two, and then probably times let's call everyone's got on average two siblings and then grandparents. So, if you, exponential, if you think about that, the amount of people in Australia who are touched or in some way affected by autism or neurodiversity, and I would put ADHD and other behavioral disorders in there as well, mm. that's a lot. That's a
1: lot. And mm. I
2: don't, you know, I'm not going to work the stats until I've got them right, but I think, same as the number of people who might. Um, identify in the LGBTIQ community right we're talking about actually quite a broad touch point Mm, and therefore there is a real opportunity and I think a need to kind of bandy together and and be that voice together yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: and speaking of communities let's talk about your village and who you have supporting you other than family around you to help you on a day-to-day basis
2: Um, so I've got awesome expert advice I've got it an awesome psychologist for Ellie and an awesome one for me. And I chose the one for me as someone who knows autistic children because one of the things of many things (laughs) that I wanted to work through was, you know, that that parenting an autistic child and the grief and all the (coughs) challenges that come around with that. We've got a fantastic paediatrician. We've got a great OT. So from a medical and therapy perspective, we've got, I, I would call them really important villagers.
1: Yeah. And have they been referred to you sort of within that a circle, bit. one refers you to another, refers you to another, or it's through, been through your own research, or how have you built the village?
2: It's a bit of both. A, a couple of referrals at the core at the beginning, and then you start to know what you're looking for. Mm. So you start to know how to research the kind of therapy that you like or the kind of therapist that suits you and your needs and your child's needs. My parents have been amazing. My mum is like a super mum. And so she is absolutely up there with, like, I'll ring her and say, oh, gosh, you know, we need an early pickup or I've really got this meeting and she'll, she's just there. So she's amazing. I don't know really how I would manage without that. Yeah. I mean, obviously my husband and I are in this together and we've it's been pretty amazing for our marriage actually and I know that's not the case for a lot of families but I think you don't know when you choose to marry someone what they're going to be like in like Mm. a crisis situation or an ongoing crisis situation and we've discovered that we actually really worked well together and that we really respect each other's approaches and in many cases we agree without really kind of having to talk it through so that's awesome and then villagers other parents I mean who have the children with similar uh, like I do find it actually sometimes quite hard to hang out with families who are Neurotypical,
1: fair enough. Yeah, yeah.
2: because um, and I didn't expect this, but it kind of hurts my heart when mm. I see, mm. especially girls of the same age and mm. what where they're up to, and I just it's just a reminder. And sometimes I don't need it. And then kids who are really compliant, I know they're not always, but yeah. you know they do they sort of sort of do ish what they're told, and you know it just sometimes the re- reaction to my kids. I just don't need it, you know, and I know most people aren't being judgmental but it's like it's hard enough, you know, so there's a bit of that. Um, so other parents obviously now we're at a special school so that community is really nice but I do I mean there's this idea of takes a village right and I'm like, where's my village because mm. it's not I, yeah so I, I like that you've asked me that question about village and I think I know why <laughs> Talked about something as well but um uh, yeah you need that really this the 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 need for community like everyone who of people who understand you in whatever realm is yeah really mm. important yeah <laughs>
0: We were talking to a friend of the podcast who has a son with autism and she was telling us about a conference she went to, it was actually in London, and it was four parents of kids on the spectrum and they were all eagerly anticipating this prominent doctor who was the keynote speaker and himself has autism. And the very first thing he said was, you only need to know one thing, nothing else matters, look after yourself only then will you be able to help your child. So where does caring for yourself actually sit Mm -hmm. on your list of priorities?
2: I mean, again, I think this is one of those things that most parents will go, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone says that to all parents, Mm. you'll be a better parent if you take time for yourself. And most parents are like, when, how, where am I supposed to do that? So that's obviously the same maybe a little bit more because there's more appointments and there's more windows to be repaired and there's mm. more you know something else to do on top of the sort of other busy busy life of being a parent it is it is true and i think it's taken me maybe now that we're in a school that works we're medication we're getting it there that i've got a little bit of space and i am now i go to yoga I love meditation. I go outside. I like running. And, you know, so I, because I'm a high energy person, I need to move my body, but I also need to calm my mind because a lot of the pain is the thinking, Mm. worrying about the future, Mm. worrying about like any sort of form of anxiety or stress. And so, yeah, as I said, I have a great psychologist as well. So, I mean, I love Self-care, I love therapy. Sometimes I think I push it on other people too hard, you know. I know you need therapy for that. And they're like, yeah, I know you like therapy, but I prefer Reiki or whatever. (laughs) So obviously you got to find your thing. And, yeah, prioritising it. I mean, I think, again, you know, people take their gym bags off to work and they go to the gym at lunchtime. You can go to yoga at lunchtime or you can go to meditation or, you know. So I think using those systems that are already there for the things that you need.
0: thinking about the three years that have elapsed since you've had Ellie's diagnosis and then looking into the future we're just wondering do you feel any additional pressure to earn and to keep working so that when you do need to make choices around schools that are just right for Ellie or additional therapy or support that she might need or even thinking about any ways in which you might need to additionally support her longer into the future than maybe a parent of a neurotypical child might have does that does that pressure come to bear
2: Strangely, I think that I set that pressure up for myself even before I had kids because I wanted to be able to support myself financially as a woman. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where that was. I suppose my mum always worked and maybe uh, that was always going to be something that was uh, kind of important for me. So I think that um, it's just fortuitous, actually, that I had sort of already set that goal of trying to find a career path that might not sound as impressive at a dinner party but I knew that might be sort of able to earn enough that at the time I could be an independent woman and now you know but I do I mean I do and I feel also we're all living very expensive lives I think again back to this whole this family struggling trying to kind of live in these areas and you know do the things that we feel like are the right things for our kids like currently we live in a house it's not huge and it's but it's quite close to the city and I actually think maybe what we ought to be doing is living you know, old rambling massive house in the country, right? So that sort of thing is starting to shift to me. And that is in some ways financially oriented because of course it is cheaper to live further out. But I'm sort of mixing it also also up with, if we had to change things financially, what else would suit the lifestyle that we need? Because in, maybe these, this is a gift for us saying, you don't need to this, do this a city pressure life thing. So yes, yes, the, pre- the financial pressure is there. And I, it actually makes me really cross because I see a lot of parents who actually can't work or at least one of them can't work because like one of the mums I know, fantastic woman, she's a nurse, two of her kids have got really major anxiety issues and are on the spectrum she can't work so i just that makes me cross that financially she's compromised career-wise she's compromised like all of us but more Mm, and mm. um you know back to the point about social change and and legislation i wonder you know what can we do about that how can we make that Mm. not another blow right like it's hard Mm. enough but to also have the blow of financially being impacted and i just that makes me really cross Mm. i feel that something has to be done there Mm.
0: And it's, yeah, it's got to happen on one side or the other and obviously the sort of snail's pace at which policy and legislation changes just might not be enough. And so when you talk about that exponential figure of how many people are living on the spectrum and and the communities around them, you're talking about a really big number who, if they start to agitate, might just, Mm -hmm. you know, be able to start affecting that social change. (laughs) You actually have a new business in the works talking Uh, about earning can you tell us a bit about it
2: so the moment it's business might be a stretch (laughs) (laughs) initiative um project yes i am building a village and it's called takes a village and because i think that we need to have more around care for the the parents and the helpers so there's i mean plenty of services out there for kids and you know you go to the psychologist for your child's emotional needs and you go to the ot for their growth or fine motor development needs and you you know you go most of the, the things that you have set up in your life are for them and I just think there's a there's a big gap and very much to that point of the doctor who made the point about self-care for parents that's what I want to kind of build so I've called it takes a village it's at the moment it's a very sort of high level it's online you can find it takesavillage.com.au but I've got Plans to create additional services for different realms where we can actually try and put some more care and structure around the parents and the and the and the carers and the guardians because I think it's missing. I think we need it and we need community. You know, back to that point about being able to come together. At the moment, it'll be an online community, but I'd I'd love to, in time, to be able to bring people together physically to either share ideas or, you know, bring experts around similar to the I think to the um, conference that you talked about in London. And there is some of that stuff happening, but I think that um, I. I really want it to be focused on parents and, mm. and and caregivers
0: and we need to get this on the NDIS
2: well so yeah absolutely look I've got I've got long many many plans of people that I need to talk to and <laughs> things I need to do and I and, and absolutely uh, the NDIS I don't know if anyone else has done this yet but I definitely want to have a conversation with them about um their support for yeah the, the supporters because it's
0: often so much about consumables on the NDIS isn't it and not so uh, it's much a lot the about support services yeah oh there's
2: lots of therapy mm. um but for the kids but yeah exactly yeah, mm, yeah. yeah.
1: What would you say to a parent who has a kid with additional needs struggling with pressures of work and life right now?
2: You're not alone, and you're going to be okay. I think you know there's a real starting point of just giving a big hug. Not right now. You have to do a coronavirus version of a hug. (laughs) Sanitise first. Some
1: kind of big
2: warm elbow tap. Yep. I think that finding people who understand very quickly is really important because you can find yourself isolated very quickly and if you are a private person and if you are someone who is less inclined to kind of share then you find yourself retreating I mean I'm a highly social person and I have found myself in the last couple of years really socially retreating one because I'm tired and I don't have anything to give but also because the effort of having to I don't know participate in an in in a pre-issue way I just almost can't do it anymore. So I think that really connecting and sharing is, again, maybe it's just me. Maybe that's what I think is really important. But I do also think that, um, testing with your, from an employee perspective, testing with your employer what policies they currently have in place. Because with the big organisations, there'll be, there'll be carer's leave and other kinds of leave that you can probably access and flexible practices. But people might not expect to apply those in your circumstances. So I think there's, a, there's a, um, an opportunity and in fact a responsibility to convey that, that this is a version where flexible needs are required. And, again, that's going to come back to the educating of others. And, look, some jobs just are more ready for it than others, like any flexible working. Mm. That comes back to the same debate for all parents again. You know, some jobs, if you're doing something where you're writing or you're developing something or you're um, creating something on your own or via the phone, fine. If you're delivering a service to other humans, it's really hard to do flexibly. Mm. So... I do think you need to think about your job and think about if this is a life thing, maybe shifting in time to something that is more conducive, yeah, because we, we are in control of our futures and we have to take ownership of that and we all need to reskill in this world anyway because jobs are changing so much. So I think taking ownership and being aware that it's a long-term thing mm-hmm. and that, you know, making small shifts in the right direction are really important. Good advice
1: and jump on it takes a village
2: come to take the village <laughs> come to take the village we can all come together and i'm building up different services and different ideas and i mean the other thing is is getting help right that's the yeah. other thing and we talked about expert help but babysitting babysitting finding a babysitter is not easy that easy for most families i'll tell you what finding a babysitter for kids who have unexpected behaviors or as mm. i like to call it extra zing that's mm. what I call it on my. Love a birth that. Time. It's love a very it. generous way <laughs> yeah. of saying they can be really, really hard work. Yeah. And so finding a babysitter uh, is, has. Been, I've had nannies and babysitters li- literally walk out of my house crying, and I understand why, because this is not a world that you've probably seen very much of before. So currently, my babysitter, her brother is autistic, and so she understands, she can tolerate it, she can handle the abusive language doesn't take her personally she can ho- and look even sometimes she needs a break we mm-hmm. all do but so um I've actually started working with another organization called Care Now who have this fantastic group of carers who have really good training and understanding of kids with unexpected behaviors so we're sort of talking together a lot about you know i'm sort of working on the family side of bringing people together and he's doing this fantastic work of building up carers who are really capable um so asking for help finding the right kind of help Mm. you know come to take the village and we'll find you the help yeah because trying the the
1: neurotypical way for things like that is most likely going to fail yeah Mm. yeah Final question, Anna. What does work like a mother-father mean to you? What's the PG rating on
2: this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> on this, It's a podcast. General. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> well,
2: So, I mean, I, lo- I know everybody loves this work like a mother-father. It's the best. So the first one to me feels like work like a mother. The other word that sounds like father, that's what it feels like a little bit for both the parents um, because it's extra. It's just extra. Like it's hard enough. It's really hard enough. We all know parenting's hard enough, but this is really working like a mother. Mm -mm. Mm. So that's one thing that comes to mind initially, but also, and I think one of your other guests might've done this. I think when you put the words together, it kind of blurs the lines of gender of who needs to do what. So my husband and I are in some ways, you know, we pursue the sort of typical gender roles, but in probably more ways we don't. Like I like fixing the pool valve or something, <laughs> right? And he might be more inclined to want to cook a nice osso or something. And so when you're working together and those gendered lines are blurred, you're all working, you're putting all that stuff into one and you're just trying to wait, find a way to make it work as, as a one almost. And then I think also the other one that has occurred to me is for single parents, they have to do that, don't they? Yeah, um, And I've got lots of single parents doing it really tough in their own way in a different way, and I do think that they're working like a mother-father every day, you mm. know. So I love – I think that there's so many ways you can interpret that phrase, mm. but I still like my first one the best. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing such a personal journey with us today, Anna. We really appreciate it. Thank it's you, Anna. It's such a
2: pleasure. I love what you're doing. I love your podcast. I'm binging – Every time one comes out, I love it. Yay! Carry on your great work. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you rate, review and subscribe to help us spread the word and keep those episodes coming to you. You can
1: follow us on Instagram at mothertongue underscore agency for episode updates and feel free to drop us a DM or comment to let us know who you're keen to hear from in future. Until next time, work like a mother father.